Howdy folks, welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Dutch Pilot Guy, searchable on Instagram, aiming to bring to you my insights, my ideas, and some of the issues that impact our world the most. Today on this, my first podcast, I would like to introduce you to my pattern of thought, sifting through data as a means to optimism. I'd like to acknowledge the data, but I would also like to promote deeper and more critical level of thought in the public at large. To some degree, I aim to incite anger. I aim to incite question. I aim at the people who are the why people. And so I ask you to join me over the next 20 minutes or so as it brings you the information and ideas that I focus on, allowing me to function safely and proactively in a time where there are increased unknowns. And so today, this is the five reasons I am not panicking about coronavirus. So let's face it, folks, the current coronavirus pandemic has gripped and ripped societies around the globe and has thrust our cultures into a series of social experiments of lockdowns and for the first time, seemingly quarantining health people, all based on the theory of reducing transmission of a virus, which for many masquerades as a colder flu, if it masquerades as anything at all. For so many of those infected with the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which causes COVID-19, the progress of the disease has evolved essentially in the public eye. For a while there, every day, something new popped up as a symptom. In fact, now, one could argue, if there's anything wrong with you, stay home. Now, at first, around Christmas and New Year's of 2019, the outbreak of a mysterious cluster of pneumonias in Wuhan, China, was getting some some attention in the West, with recollections of the 2003 SARS outbreak in the forefront of people's minds, particularly once the then newly identified coronavirus included the name SARS in its official naming. As countries reached listlessly for containment measures, I personally became furious always suspecting that the true scope of the then newly discovered coronavirus was beyond containment. Listening to governments and medical professionals opine on the situation, suggesting that the outbreak would not be of great concern to the West, was itself a great concern to me. After all, in hindsight, all that rhetoric has proven to be savagely incorrect. Would you not agree? But in the moment, The very notion that a highly contagious pathogen could be contained to a region of the globe that sees thousands of outbound flights per day, along with a a hotly debated incubation period ranging from days to weeks, it just seemed utterly preposterous. But what else was preposterous? What else erroneously led the public down the road of panic? You don't believe me about panic? Toilet paper. That's all I need to say. Now, some have suggested that the tendency to think as I did was a form of anxiety, as I would lament that the virus was already here. But what that mindset did was allowed me to hope for the best and be suspiciously aware and yet still prepared for the worst. It was not long ago that I adopted the mantra of many who face risk head on. After all, how is it that astronauts strap themselves to a rocket which tends towards entropy? How is it that as a former peace officer, I and others entered chaotic situations while those around us wished the chaos away? 
how is it that as an aviation professional, I and others maintain a sense of control and order amidst a series of variables so beyond our control and influence? The simple answer is we seek information. We seek an understanding. Information is the anecdote to fear. And in almost all cases, the true anxiety associated with events is rooted in the anticipation of the event itself. It was with this in mind that I made some very conscious decisions. First, I resolved to keep information in context, always asking questions of data to ensure that the critical factors associated with those data points being shared, particularly those that the mainstream media were sharing, I tried to keep them plausible. I tried to keep my questions reasonable. Second, I concluded early on, just as occurred during the 2009-2010 H1N1 pandemic, that there would be a vast amount of noise associated with the shared information, particularly as the mainstream media would take information without peer review and share it in keeping with their mantra of, if it bleeds, it leads. For example, who remembers in 2009, 2010, wondering if it was safe to eat pork? Who remembers that? Third and finally, I resolved with myself to remain optimistic and yet realistic, measuring my expectations, understanding that the overall response to the virus would be more likened to a reaction than that of a response. A reaction, of course, being uncontrolled, based purely on fail-safe principles, rather than a calculated reality. With these three thoughts in mind, I headed into the pandemic asking a series of questions, questions which I ask still today as a means of weighing what is known against what information is desired. Yet I still manage my expectations, understanding that there are precisely zero absolutes in this pandemic, and never mind life itself. Just as I have for months now, and so many of you have too, I focus on these questions and have critically considered why it is that I, as a mere mortal human, am not panicked by the coronavirus, which is not just a virus anymore, but now a sort of social phenomenon that has occupied tremendous amounts of community headspace. Today on this first podcast experience, I want to share with you these five reasons why I'm not panicking. So first and foremost, and this is a challenging one to discuss. What I maintain is that our ability to observe and distinguish between illnesses, particularly those which present with symptoms that are common to other more ubiquitous maladies, such as the common cold or influenza, are often overlooked or diagnosed as the more common infection, absent, of course, a laboratory test. Consider for a moment, though, the last time you went to the doctor, perhaps you had aches, Maybe you had a headache, maybe you had some measure of sinus or chest congestion, sore throat, a cough. It's possible you had a fever. What was the response from your doctor? My suspicion tells me that you likely heard something similar to the following. It's viral. Not much we can do. Let it run its course. Drink lots of fluids. Get lots of rest. And I'll write you a note for work. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Do those symptoms sound at all familiar to anyone? A quick review of the Center for Disease Control website on the COVID-19 pandemic and the symptoms associated with infection reads as follows. Symptoms may appear 2 to 14 days after exposure to the virus. People with these symptoms may have COVID-19. 
Cough, shortness of breath or difficulty breathing, fever, chills, muscle pain, sore throat, or new loss of taste or smell. Now, I, for one, can attest to much of that in late November and early December, as I encountered one of the most savage illnesses I have had in recent memory. And that carried on into the new year. Did I have COVID-19 then? I mean, that's debatable and unclear at this point, and we'll never know without serological testing. And even then, the timeline would still be fuzzy. But with respect to the idea of surveillance on disease, it is readily apparent that the symptoms are simply too common, with the exception of those, of course, who are hospitalized or pass away. Which brings me to my second cause for optimism. The 2019-2020 influenza season was dominated by influenza A, H1N1, PDM09. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Well, that's our old friend from 09. And the strain of H1N1 is common to the much-cited 1918 Spanish flu pandemic. Of course, in 2009, we were talking about a strange hybrid that included some avian and some swine flu, as I recall. However, all that aside because we're not talking about H1N1. The reality is that this flu season was anecdotally and scientifically discussed as being particularly aggressive around the world. As such, knowing that influenza is a leading cause of death and hospitalization, is it plausible, is it plausible that in the early days of COVID-19, that a vast number of hospitalizations and deaths were being attributed to influenza-like illnesses? Now, I'm not making up that term, influenza-like illness. You can find that quoted. Now, to be additionally clear on this, it's important to consider that even during the 2009 H1N1 pandemic, testing became increasingly sparse as illness spread rapidly. Basically, it was supply and demand. With concern going from the administering of Tamiflu to suggesting supportive care and encouraging those who were ill to remain home. In these cases, these people were often cited as having an influenza-like illness, rather than a confirmed diagnosis of H1N1 or any other strain of influenza for that matter. Now, mate these two ideas of disease surveillance and a rather severe influenza season together. And my suspicious mind tells me that there is a serious plausibility that the SARS-CoV-2 virus was well on its way around the world before much of the Western developed world began its attempts at containment and mitigation. As a result of this notion, how plausible do you feel that it may be that SARS-CoV-2 was making its rounds shrouded in the identity of an influenza-like illness while being overlooked? Well, a Northeast University study published last month uprooted much of the coronavirus timeline, working off the datum of March 1st, 2020. On this day, the United States, between five cities, Boston, Chicago, New York City, San Francisco, and Seattle, officially had reported 23 laboratory-confirmed cases of coronavirus. The study itself, however, based on a New York Times article, states, the hidden outbreaks were spreading completely undetected and were amounting to nearly 28,000 infections. Further adding to the confusion of the noise from the numbers is that it is believed that the majority of infections on the East Coast of the United States originated in Europe, further eroding the timeline of the pandemic, now including a French patient treated in late December 
in France, who is believed to be the first known case of coronavirus in France. When at the same time, in the time that we were all thinking of, attention was being dedicated to the Chinese outbreaks in Wuhan. Now, based on the fuzzy numbers and the potential for cases going unreported and undetected, either as a function of being asymptomatic or having symptoms either so mild as to be beneath reporting or being sloughed off as an influenza-like illness or a common cold, the true extent of infection simply cannot be ascertained. Instead, we utilize the number of confirmed cases as our denominator. Consider for a moment the likelihood of the Northeastern University study previously mentioned. On March 1st, 2020, the United States, according to ContagionLive.com, had reported a second death linked to COVID-19. Mathematically, based on the known cases in these five cities, and also accounting that the two deaths were reported in King County around Seattle, Washington, the case fatality rate would be equal to the two deaths divided by the 23 cases, and that number then multiplied by 100 bringing about a case fatality rate of 8.7%. That is surely enough to terrify anyone. I mean, that's 8.7 people dying out of 100. I don't know how that 0.7 happens. But better yet, that's 87 out of 1,000. That's scary. However, if one assumes that the infection was far more widespread, say, utilizing the numbers from the Northeastern University study, the new number more closely related to what they refer to as the infection fatality rate, is 0.007%. Wow. Okay, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, people were dying and we didn't know. And yes, that's true. We did not know. We also did not notice. And there was no discussion of mysterious deaths there were no discussions of mysterious clusters of pneumonia. And we were not adequately seeking the causes of death. And we were likely attributing deaths to influenza or other comorbidities. Simply put, you're not going to sell it to me that out of 28,000 suspected cases, that there were only two COVID-19 deaths. I, it's just, that's just not real. But in any case, the infection fatality rate is very likely less than the then-known case fatality rate of 8.7%, and is even less than the current case fatality rates around the world, ranging, depending on where you ask, between 5 and 12%, varying by region. Furthermore, the University of Oxford's Center for Evidence-Based Medicine has stated that the true infection fatality rate likely rests between 0.41% and 0.1%, 0.1% being roughly equivalent to influenza as we know it. At any rate, is it plausible, therefore, that we are not fully aware of the prevalence of infection to an enormous margin of error, and that with our relatively poor disease surveillance, along with the commonality of symptoms to other more understood infections, doubled up with the severity of the recent flu season, that this pandemic has a series of noisy data points which cloud our judgment on the severity of the situation? Now, surely that last point left you feeling maybe a little bit irritable or confused. Maybe it left you feeling overly optimistic. I'm not really sure. 
And especially considering the tragedies of many parts of Europe and New York State and other epicenters alike, it might be difficult to fully grasp. But this is where I ask you to appreciate that there are more infections than we know. More than we know. And that should actually be kind of comforting on some level. But I also want to ask, who were these souls that were dying? Were they young, healthy, and expecting many more years out of their lives? The sad answer, unfortunately, for the majority, is no. In fact, just today, a sampling of Alberta, Alberta, Canada, shows that 101 of the province's 135 deaths have occurred in long-term care facilities. That's 75%. Furthermore, an article in the National Post I believe two days ago, cites that the rate of death for those under the age of 65 is 0.0006%. Put these ideas together. Consider for yourself that you're not fully aware of the comorbidities that those who are dying have. I mean, that's just a function of patient privacy. And ask yourself the question that has been circulating. Did they die from COVID-19 or did they die of COVID-19? Because they are two very different questions. And from the very beginning, this idea has circulated in my mind. In the early days, I asked, how healthy are most citizens in China? China has a significant portion of the population that smokes. And according to canceratlas.org, China reported 4.3 million new cases of cancer in 2015 with 2.8 million deaths from cancer in that same year. That's over 7,500 deaths per day, folks. 7,500 per day, just due to cancer, with lung cancer being the leader. So I ask again, what were the comorbidities? Well, we don't know, and we will likely never know. We'll likely never be afforded that information if that information can actually be gathered at all. There's just too much of it. But this same series of questioning on comorbidities needs to be transplanted, re-examined, and re-asked country by country, region by region, and indeed, even case by case. Folks, for these reasons, our surveillance of communicable disease, the presence of a significant influenza season, the unknown infection prevalence, the mortality rate, being the minority in the statistics, and age and comorbidity being significant foes in the fight against COVID-19, it becomes increasingly easy to reduce anxiety. Although it is understandable that we must exercise concern for those who are vulnerable, and we must be tolerant and patient with those who themselves are vulnerable. But we must also recognize that an infection is not a death sentence. Now, let me address the elephant in the room. Yes, much of the information is informed hindsight, sure. So how then did I maintain optimism on the negative prospects of COVID-19 from the beginning? The answer lies in optimism. The answer lies in asking questions. That which is rooted in curiosity, which we seem to have stopped doing somewhere along the way. Curiosity is childlike. It's a beautiful thing. We ask questions, but we encourage people to stop because we are bothered by the question why. Because it's likely 
that something is not understood by us. It's likely that we don't know what we're talking about. It's likely we don't understand it enough to explain it clearly. It's often easier to succumb to the masses that do not actively seek information. It's easier to be a sheep than it is to be a sheepdog in the face of the wolf and to just take in information from the mainstream media and, of course, the doldrums of social media. Both of those sources are a haven for overwhelming amounts of information. True, false, fake, everything. Whittling down at our optimism and, indeed, our will to be positive. Will, of course, being a function of opportunity and motivation. Here is where we capitulate to our desires for security and certainty. Taking some sort of sick comfort in misery loves company. And in doing so, we forget that we are panicking in a modern technological sense, further compounded by the psychological impact of FOMO or the fear of missing out, as though to reopen the Facebook app will, for once, yield us some nugget of information that will insulate us from the fear of our mortality, a mortality that is being thrust upon us. We're always given the gift of time. We see sick people all the time. We hear of sick people all the time. But we are always given the benefit of time. We ask, how much time do we have? And in the face of COVID-19, the answer is none. So out of this, I encourage you, the listener, to always seek to understand that which scares you. Seek to understand your fears. Seek to understand your phobias. Get to that critical factor that if you eliminate, it disappears. And in doing so, I wish you well, and I wish you the happiness that comes with peace of mind. Thank you for listening. <laughs>